Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Baldur's Gate 2, Shadows of Om, and Throne of Ball. Uh, it's developed by Bioware and published by Interplay Entertainment. It's the sequel to Baldur's Gate. It was released back in 2000 for Windows. And we'll be talking spoilers for both of those properties, Shadows of Mom, Throne of Ball. So heads up if you are sensitive to that. This is it, the year of Baldur's Gate, the year in which we play the trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was that during our, I don't, we didn't do a podcast on it, but me, me and Brian chatted around New Year's, had a kind of like catch up and hang out kind of thing. We talked about goals for 2023 and one of Brian's was he wanted to do a Baldur's Gate 2 podcast. Uh, So, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 just came out. It looks fantastic. I'm excited to start playing that too. Uh, But 2023 for me is the year that I go through the entire trilogy. Yeah, we're we're catching Josh up. Um, I'm I was revisiting in preparation for Baldur's Gate three, which at the time of this recording is out. I have been playing a ton of it. It is great. I'm so yeah. glad it's great. <laughs> That's fantastic, especially when you've been waiting twenty three years between games. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, it it's uh, really you know Baldur's Gate three is a special game. We'll talk about that when we inevitably do a podcast on it. But let's turn our attention back to the Halcyon years of 2000. Um, I've just gotten home from uh, a day of caddying once again. And I (laughs) (laughs) pop into my CD-ROM drive, uh, my favorite RPG of the day, Baldur's Gate 2. Um, Yeah, so that that was sort of where I came to this game. I I didn't play it like on on launch or anything. I wasn't like looped into games uh, that were being put out or things like that to you know, be one to pick up a game on launch. But my, once again, probably came to this through my cousin, Mike. Uh, it is a good ass RPG and uh, continues on right from where Baldur's Gate one left off. Almost exactly. You play the same character. You can import your character from Baldur's Gate if you so choose. And a lot of your companions uh, from the first game are available in the second game as well. Yeah, I really like that. Did you import your character, the character you left at level one, or did you? <laughs> did you... <laughs> no, no. Uh, so for you know, people who have listened to our first Baldur's Gate cast, um, I had some trouble with the game, and a lot of it stemmed from being level one, and I was level one for, I feel like, eight or nine hours, which is a, <laughs> that would be called a flex if a game did it today, but back then, that's just what they did. Yep. Uh, Yeah, it was style of the time, I guess. And that was, you know, it was a low level campaign. Um, (laughs) I know we talked in that cast about how, like, in that same amount of time, I think I was through four chapters. But, um, (laughs) you know, that's what happens when you have a lot of experience with a game. Mm. Um, But no, but Baldur's Gate 2 is is interesting. You know, it's it's obviously one of these games that's heralded as like, you know, it is held up as one of the top RPGs of, um, you know, all time, really. Um, And I think, you know, Bioware kind of set out to make that like they knew Baldur's Gate was a hit but at the time they sought out to improve on it in pretty much every way as, as, um, as they had mentioned in a few different articles I'd read. Um, they got, you know, suggestions from fans, uh, had a bunch of features they wanted to, to add. Um, some of these included things like 800 by 600 resolution. Holy Big hell, <laughs> a graphics card even do that these days? 
I don't think so. <laughs> I think my toaster might be able to do that these days. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Um, but from a more mechanical perspective, things like character kits, um, you know, subclasses for um, those uninitiated with the nomenclature of second edition D&D. But um, yeah, they, you know, generally speaking, there are a lot of uh, incremental mechanical improvements to the Infinity Engine that were brought into Baldur's Gate 2. Um, but to my mind, the biggest improvements came in just like they had a much better idea of where they wanted to take the narrative and it pretty great writing across the board for how it was handled. And on top of that, just an ass load of side content, all of which is generally speaking worth seeing. Like there is not a lot of content here that is, I would say chaff, you know, it's all relatively interesting there wasn't an idea that was thrown in here haphazardly from my perspective and i think a lot of that uh we'll get into this a little bit later too but since they were using the same engine and doing a direct sequel like um there are a lot of times i played this game and i'm like this is the game Baldur's gate one should have been and i think I could feel like some of the devs saying like, yes, this is the game I wanted to make the first time around. But when you're busy coding up an engine, when you're trying to figure out how to make Dungeons and Dragons work in a computer video game format, um, they did a lot of the, so much of the groundwork the first time around, both in terms of the programming and the design. Yeah, definitely true. Um, there's a really great 10 years on retrospective Baldur's Gate interview with some of the developers and the founders of Bioware. Uh, out there on the internet. Um, I think it was like a GDC talk from back in the day. Uh, feel free to look that up. But it was pretty enlightening about sort of the whole development process and sort of what they were taking from BG1 and coming into BG2 with. Um, for what it's worth, we both, I believe, played the Enhanced Edition, right? So it's the one that mm -hmm. includes all of the bells and whistles, you know, the expansion, Throne of Ball, and a, a, you know, a list a mile long of just random little quality of life improvements, a couple of which I want to call out because... Back in the day, if you played this, uh, putting the CD in your CD-ROM drive like I did, you were playing on core rules, right? And um, now you're not. Um, you will get maximum HP rolls by default on normal mode, quote unquote, in this game. Um, you will, you know, you won't have to quick save and quick load if you get a shitty roll on level up, um, which is big. Um, they have about 50% damage reduction as a default for players, surprisingly. That was oh. one that was a little surprising for me just to sort of keep things moving because of how much combat there is in this game. And um, there's no chunking of party members. Um, I'm not sure if you're, you know what that term means, but if um, you know how if you get a critical hit on an enemy and like overkill them, they will just explode into chunks? Mm -hmm. um, that could happen to your characters too. And what it would mean is you could not resurrect them. Um, hmm. So yeah, a little harsh. Hang on, you played through this before. Did you ever use the resurrect spell as opposed to the quick load button? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I'll talk to you about this more as we get into some of the late game stuff, but resurrect became a frequent flyer on my, my hot button key um, in later game fights, especially some of the like final fights in Throne of Ball. Like there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of resurrecting going on. We'll just leave it at that. Um <laughs> But, Are you trying to resurrect your own party members before the enemies can resurrect them as undead zombie slaves? <laughs> the game, I, there's not a lot of necromancy going on from the enemy's perspective in this game, but um, I'll, for lack of a better word, it's just good to have a full party for going against uh, all of the troubles that come down your way. 
um, at the end of, say, Throne of Ball, um, and even the end of Shadows of Am, really. I think this game has a couple difficulty spikes in it, or this series of games, really, because, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that now that I've mentioned it, is this really is just two games. You know, I know you didn't uh, get all the way through Throne of Ball or even to it, but um, <laughs> Shadows of Am is long. Throne of Ball is also basically a full-length game. It's like 25, 30 hours of content. This should have been Baldur's Gate 2 and 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for uh, people unfamiliar with it, Shadow, or Throne of Ball is the expansion pack released for Shadows of Ob that introduced additional high-level character combat or, uh, ideas, quests, mechanics, classes. Um, so the idea would be that once you finished Shadows of Ob, your characters could continue right away into Throne of Ball and just continue up that power co- curve. They invented... 10th level spells they invented all sorts of abilities for your things you know just like wish somebody into non-existence or something i don't know uh i didn't get there but uh you could getting thrown a ball yeah i did so we'll, we'll talk about that but yeah you know i really do see it as like a complete trilogy because like where shadows of am ends um the story is kind of incomplete right like we're talking, and maybe we'll just get right into the story summary here. We're continuing on from the events of Baldur's Gate 1. You have found out that your character is the spawn of the god Ball. You are a Ball spawn. And um, at the opening of uh, Shadows of Am, you are in the dungeon of a wizard called John Irenicus. Uh, and your character can't really remember what happens, but uh, you are soon freed by Imowen, one of the characters from uh, the previous game, your sort of sister-type figure, who is also, uh, it turns out, a ball spawn. Um, but uh, you find a couple of other characters from your previous adventures, Jahira and Minsk, and you try and bust out of John Aaronicus's, uh lair just to sort of kick off the game here. Pretty interesting little sequence. Yeah, I think this it's the first act of the game, but I think this first dungeon probably took me about three or four hours to get out of. It was pretty jam-packed with content, despite being like, you know, a single map screen uh, worth of things. Yeah, it is. And I think this is like, compare this to Candlekeep, you know? Like, this is a much better tutorial. It's much more, um, I guess, mechanically and thematically rich it, it's kind of high drama right off the bat right like you you kind of join this story in media res which is much different than sort of waking up and being told to go you know sweep up some horse shit or you know kill rats mm-hmm. in a basement you know oh yeah much more interesting of a setting and a locale and area to explore the um quests there weren't like oh find the badge i left in some haystacks <laughs> it's like this dude's enslaved me just let me die, please. Um, <laughs> so just right off the bat, much more interesting. Another thing right off the bat you start off with is being level seven, which hell yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is kind of the thing about Baldur's Gate 2 is like, it feels to me like level seven through 15 or so are the sweet spot for second edition D&D. You mm-hmm. know, like you have a good amount of uh, skills, mechanics, spells, what have you at your disposal, but it hasn't gotten to the part where it gets too overly complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think both of us had the advantage of playing through Baldur's Gate, the original, first. I'd wonder if somebody thrown into this not having played that, if that would be a disadvantage when they're like trying to figure out their class's abilities, uh, how to 
how magic spells work and whatnot uh, when they have as much thrown at them. Like, it was very much aimed at players that had played through Baldur's Gate already. There was no necessarily like a tutorial, like, this is how you cast a magic spell. They assumed you knew how to do that, which that worked out great for us and kind of let us get into the meat of the game faster. That's a great point, and I feel like you know, there are folks out there that will advocate for skipping Baldur's Gate 1 and just going into Baldur's Gate 2. And I personally wouldn't do that, you know, like the, for one, to your point, they don't do as much tutorialization in BG2 um, or really any for that matter. They don't do much in BG1 Enhanced Edition either now that I think about it. So maybe <laughs> part of that Enhanced Edition should be just a real good modern tutorial. Um, oh, well, that's neither here nor there. But to your point, um, this game... I do feel like doesn't exactly meet new players on solid ground. You know, you, you do have to be bringing in that Baldur's Gate one knowledge. And I think that's exactly how it was developed too. Like, as I said up top, they had a hit on their hands. They were like, we are catering to the audience that uh, really loved Baldur's Gate one. And we are giving them everything they asked for. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that too. And even though they didn't tutorialize that first act one dungeon i also feel like it wasn't a extremely difficult dungeon uh compared to some of the things you fight or go through later on like um if you were a new player to Baldur's gate 2 you hadn't played the series before and you jumped into this dungeon um you might die once or twice but for the most part you'd be able to figure out why you died and correct for that on your next quick save or quick load yes yeah <laughs> worth mentioning that that quick save quick load button is still being ridden pretty hard in this one uh, uh, we'll, ta- we'll talk about combat a bit more later but i want to talk a bit before we move on from johnny renicus's dungeon um you know what what exactly is different between these two games because while it is still the infinity engine it is still um generally speaking looking the same you know from a a on the screen perspective there are changes that were introduced in Baldur's Gate 2 back in the day for one character kits Um, if you're just playing the enhanced edition you will not know or notice this because they backported all of the stuff from Baldur's Gate 2 that was enhanced Hmm. into Baldur's Gate 1 as part of the enhanced edition Mm -hmm. um, allowing you to take like say uh, a very specific character kit like a stalker from Baldur's Gate 1 all the way through to Baldur's Gate 3, or sorry, Baldur's Gate 2, Throne of Ball. <laughs> Not Baldur's Gate 3. Um, although that would be cool, huh? <laughs> Pour <Portland> in from... <laughs> I don't know how they do that, but it'd be cool. Um, but yeah, so there are things like that. There's uh, In Baldur's Gate 2, I feel like they've also added just a slightly upgraded um, artistic bent. There's better lighting and effects on spells. There's a much greater bestiary representation, uh, as you will see very soon with like large-scale monsters like Beholders and Dragons starting to appear. And um, yeah, it's... I, I feel like it, it does improve on those sort of macro-mechanical aspects pretty thoroughly. hmm Yeah, and I, I think the art was better in this game than it was in the previous one, too. Like, the environments mm-hmm. especially, I found them much more interesting the first time around. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I guess um, it's funny, all of, like, having just 
this is a, a strange thing revisiting both of these sort of classic games in quick succession but now that you mention it i do feel like there is sort of a step change as, as you get into Baldur's Gate 2 in terms of environment design especially once you get out of ironicus's dungeon into ethkalta city of coin <laughs> capital of the region of Am. <laughs> now this was a fun thing for me because um, I never got to Baldur's Gate in the original Baldur's Gate um, which I understand was a large city that kind of just opened things up um, yeah. in this game they more or less immediately just throw you out into this large city I think there's seven or eight different screens uh, kind of map screens you can visit each of them having their own like here's a neighborhood here's a bunch of quests you can do go Going back and forth between that. Normally you come across an RPG and they don't throw you into the big city until you kind of get your bearings a little bit more. Like you make your way to the big city and then you have the big quest lines going off and everything. And this one, they point you to it right away. Yeah, it, and, I, and they use it to great effect too. Like the interesting thing about Baldur's Gate 2 to my mind and the thing that I think makes it interesting and unique even to this day is it is very much an hourglass shaped game you know once you get through that John Irenicus dungeon you are basically starting the game after you know if you're a seasoned player two maybe an hour at most if you're a new player maybe three four hours as you said Josh you are out and exposed to the entire world um, it basically becomes an open world RPG like that a la Baldur's Gate 1 However, you have that tutorial behind you, you have a main quest in front of you, but it's extremely open-ended. Uh, mm -hmm. They dump you out of Ironicus's dungeon, and basically within a couple minutes, you're told, I can help you find Imowen, which is your sort of initial driving force. Find, track down John Irenicus to save Imowen. They've both been arrested by mage-hating um, mages, ironically, a couple <laughs> <of> wizards, <laughs> um, who um, are holding them up. Uh, in prison and you are said hey we can take you there and help you rescue them for the low low price of 20,000 gold and if you played Baldur's Gate 1 you're like well never mind see you in <laughs> see you never Imowen. but in, in, in this game uh, that is something that you can do after the course of a couple side quests um, and this game a couple side you... quests with asterisks after that yeah yeah this game presents you a ton of incredible side quests right immediately in chapter two and there are i you know i could i think we could probably just talk about chapter two for this entire podcast and not run out of mm. stuff to say because there's there's so many good things going on in this chapter you know tons of characters to recruit tons of like basically mini D, &D modules uh worth of side content to explore and they all have interesting twists like it's a whole game of the top tier side quest in any other game I did enjoy the quests a lot for that. They had a lot of varied, uh, varied nature to them. Um, like you might do you, there were, I stayed in the city the entire time I played the game, which was only through act two. Um, I kept spending my money before I got to 20,000. Cause like, Oh, here's a shiny <laughs> thing. Oh, uh, a magic license so I can cast spells in here and not get in trouble. Sure. Uh, so I never actually made it to the like rescue Imowen step. Uh, but I did really enjoy my time with this game in the meantime. Uh, but just, yeah, that, starting the area is massive i had side quests unlocked to go explore uh wind spear caverns or forest or wind spear hills yeah wind, yeah or uh go to some guy's keep and kick out 
the monsters attacking it or things like that. I'm like, oh, that's far away on the map. I'll just stick around (laughs) over here. Yeah, and you can do that. Like, you don't actually have to ever leave the city of Am, or sorry, the city of of Athkalta to um, accomplish that $20,000 or 20,000 gold goal. Um, As a matter of fact, a couple, like, I think I I cleared it after the first quest I did, which was killing the... um, the cult of the unseeing eye, or yeah, the eye, yeah, killing the eyeless cult was the the one that I first took on. As soon as I came into Nethkalta, um, I happened to want. I, I had a very clear idea of which party I wanted to go to, and the frontline fighter that I wanted to go through, go for with this playthrough was Keldorn, who's a paladin. And he, meeting him kicks off this quest, which basically involves you rooting out a cult that is worshiping um, a god called the eyeless one which just so happens to be a beholder who like took up residence in the sewers under the city. Um, And like just interesting little twists like that about, Oh, it's not actually a God. It's just a monster who's tricking people and forcing them to gouge out their eyes. Um, It's, it's like little things like that, that make this game's quests like a, a step above, you know, something like what you would normally see. I think that was the last quest for me um was like that's the one that uh finished it off for me and i remember i got down to like the key chambers and the guys wanted to give me they're like do you want to join our cult and i said no so i fought them and then there's this beholder coming down on me out of nowhere i'm like oh oh this was uh this was definitely telegraphed (laughs) what's going on here beholders being like the kind of i almost want to call it like the archetypical big bad of I I mean, they're on the cover art for this game, right? Like, they're yeah. monsters that have 20 eyes that each eye fires a death ray at you or a polymorph ray or something like that. Uh, very kind of like, I feel it's like a very second edition Dungeons & Dragons kind of monster. Yeah, Beholders are definitely sort of your... Like, if there was uh, an archetypical D&D monster, it would be the Beholder, right? Because dragons mm-hmm. are everywhere, you know elves and dwarves have appeared ever goblins either exactly right like all that the beholder though that's a special D &D thing from (laughs) my perspective at least i'm sure there's probably a mythological analog or something like that but i'm not aware of it D &D was the first place i ever saw beholder so it's D &D to me i think they might be an original D &D creation if i'm remembering my D &D history right Well, that's cool. And the fact that, as you said, you're starting off as a seasoned adventurer means that you can kind of sort of hold your own against a, a thing like a beholder when you're starting this game off, as long as you're playing your cards right. And you, <laughs> So that might not have been me. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, think it was like, enough. it's a blind beholder too. It's like, okay, I'm getting <laughs> trashed by a giant eye that can't see. <laughs> well you know no one ever said you were good at this game josh Uh. (laughs) i could vouch for that but thinking about you said you had a very specific party in mind who was your party i'm interested okay yeah let's do it so my party was comprised of myself a sorceress um, who i had actually carried over from a Baldur's Gate one playthrough that i completed back in like 2014 so this is a long time ago um and then, uh, so it was myself, the sorceress. Uh, as I mentioned, I had a paladin, who's my frontline fighter all around her, Keldorn. Um, I had Valigar, who, uh, aside from having a very interesting side quest with a planar sphere associated with him, is a ranger subkit called the Stalker. And he was sort of my frontline DPS slash backstabber. 
and I had Jahira. I kept her around uh, as sort of a tank and healer. Um, and then I had Airy, who is a wizard slash cleric that you can find pretty much right outside of the... Um, once you emerge from Irenicus's lair in a, in a circus tent, she's like a, she was an enslaved uh, winged elf who had her wings clipped, um, so you can't fly around to her, unfortunately. But she does become a very powerful spellcaster. And then initially, I took this goofy gnome called Jan Janssen, who uh, is a wizard thief and... I eventually ditched him for Imowen when I got her back, but he served me well for those first couple chapters. A very entertaining character. Very funny. Oh, so I had myself as a sorcerer. I had Minx. Oh, you were sorcerer too. Yeah, yeah. Th- I enjoyed the mechanics for the sorcerer for sure. Um, but like, did did that had Minx and Jahara. I had Aerie as well. Um, and then, let's see... Uh, I had the dwarf guy who wanted to go into the graveyard and dig up a book. I think it was in the first game. He had the Kagan? constitution of 19. Kagan, yeah. yeah Kagan. Mm-hmm. And then I also had the jerk betrayer Yoshima or whatever his oh, name is because yeah. I needed a thief. <laughs> and look, there's a thief in your party. So convenient. Um, I know. Did you they, clock that? Um, no, I didn't at the time because... The game's a little all over the place. So what happens is later on, Yoshima, or whatever his name is, uh, he yeah, betrays Yoshima. you to Irenicus, uh later on. But luckily, I never got that far, so we're still friends. <laughs> He's still a good thief for you. Uh, uh, but no, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that like, hey, your, your thief went away and suddenly they're like giving you one that you can immediately slot into your party. Um, I think part of that is this game... Um, in order to interact with any of the thieving ability, like if you want to pickpocket anybody or steal anything or not get destroyed by traps all over the place, um, you more or less need to have a thief in your party, I feel like. Uh, so yeah. you start off with Imowen, who is a mage thief, uh, dual class or multi-class. I think multi-class. Um, because there's a difference here, uh, but she no, she's a dual class because she's a human. Uh, human dual class, non-humans multi-class. So Moen can do thieving things, um, mm-hmm. which you know you're like, I need these. These are these are some of the abilities I need. And she's taken away from you. She's kidnapped by the Cal mages at the end of Act One. And oh look, there's a thief who just joined your party five minutes ago. And you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm still good. So I think most players will keep that thief unless they're playing a thief themselves, which I think it's going to be, I mean, there's like 20 classes and thief is one of them. So yeah, low ads, a subset of a subset. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely agree with that. And um, I, I, I did, I like the turn with uh, Yoshimo. I never really like saw it through to conclusion. I I've t- uh, talked to folks who have, and, um, it's it's interesting, like how he betrays you, and then you can't actually sort of save his soul at the end of of things in uh, some of the later chapters of uh, Shadows of Am and Throne of Ball. If you keep enough items and do enough random things, but um, it's an interesting situation. To your point, I think that about- gets into the. One of the interesting things about this game, I think, is all the side quests and companion quests that you have. Like, this game has fewer party members, possible party members in Baldur's Gate 1, uh, but they're all much more richly fleshed out, I think. 
Absolutely agree. Uh, you know, companion quests were pretty slight in Baldur's Gate 1. Like, you had to do something to ensure they didn't leave you, but then eventually they kind of just sh- shut up and, and stayed there. And in this one, they have pretty involved companion quests for every character, and usually it's a couple days after you first recruit them that their companion quest comes front and center, and they will start to say, like, yo, we got to solve this or I'm going to leave you. And um, some of them are actually quite good. Um, and some of them lead to key things like strongholds or, um, you know, permanent changes for a given character. Um, I don't know. Did you happen to do any of the companion quests during your playthrough? Or I can talk to a couple of the ones that I did. I did the dwarf book one and uh, got through like I got the book back. I'm not sure if that's the end of the quest or not. And then I did the um, the missing actor one. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you have to go and go oh, to the Air Dallas. Uh Yeah, Air, it was for Airy, the uh, mage cleric person. Like her gnome godfather or something was like, yeah, I have yeah, a friend. Yeah, da, da, da. yeah that, that all. <laughs> it, it's interesting to me. Like that, you're, you're absolutely right that this is sort of a much more fleshed out version of what happened in Baldur's Gate 1. And into my mind also, like, starts to set the seed or sow the seeds for what they would eventually do with. Things like um, Dragon Age and, and uh-huh. uh, Mass Effect, with regards to you know taking on quests for your side characters and helping them out and forming a relationship with them. Like, I don't believe there were any romances in Baldur's Gate One. I don't I can't recall. I that think you're right thing. about that. But I know there is in Baldur's Gate Two because um, there are some really weird ones. <laughs> But, um, like, the Jahira suddenly, like, after seeing Keldorn, or uh, Khalid being murdered, being a romance option, was strange to me. But um, there are several in this game. Uh, more for the male characters than the female characters. Shocker for 2000. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but there were for, there were for uh, the female characters as well. Uh, and I an think option. the expanded edition expanded on that as well. Is that right? I think so, but not as much as you would hope. Um, oh, come on, 2011. <laughs> do better. I know, exactly. I, yeah, so, I mean, to be fair, like, they were probably trying to do a lot of preservation. What they should have done was maybe introduced additional characters that could fill that role rather than try and, like, rewrite existing characters, you know? Oh, maybe, um, maybe. But I think this was kind of the start of, you know, I call it the Bioware formula a little bit about this idea about your companions aren't just like numbers in a battle to fight alongside you, but they reveal story. And it's not just through a wall of text about my backstory, but it's through the doing of things, which for a CRPG as a genre, you know, you are the doer of things. You can read Mm -hmm. text, but most people don't like to, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. However, it turns out that people do when it pertains to shipping characters that you spend dozens of hours with, um, as dra- <laughs> dra- Dragon Age would soon prove. But yeah, t- to your point, it's definitely sort of a sea change in terms of like how people are viewing these folks, not just as character sheets, but as characters, um, which is key. Um, to that well, they end, would do though, things like um, you'd get random interjections from them in different situations. And even more so like, 
uh, there'd be conversations that didn't involve you as the player character, like Jahara talks to Eri or something like that, and they have a little tiny character revealing conversation and you're not part of it uh which is centering it like it's their characters aren't just dependent on you anymore yeah that's a really good point i guess in in my party it was always like keldorn and jahira going back and forth because Jahira's like a true neutral druid and she's like oh it's all about the balance and keldorn's like no i'm a lawful good paladin who always needs to stick my nose in anything um, if it's not going exactly as I think it should, <laughs> including changing quest outcomes for you. If you decide to try and do something evil, he will literally stop you and be like, wait a minute. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I just want to call out to Jahari here a little bit. Like the idea of the true neutral alignment in D&D is like one of the most D&Dist things <laughs> it that really there is. is. It's like, I don't care about anything as long as there's balance. I'm, I think in the uh, second edition rulebook, as an example, they're like, uh, a true neutral druid might side with the villagers to beat back the gnolls, but when the villagers are winning, he changes sides to f- side with the gnolls and make sure one group doesn't get too powerful. It's like, what? what is this? Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Doesn't that just ensure literally everyone dies? So who's... Are you just on the side of everyone dying? Um, but yeah. Uh, uh, and so, so this game brought back some second edition memories for me, as you can see. <laughs> Yeah, true, true neutral as a concept is really just like a morass of dumbassery. Um, there's there's nothing really to dig your heels in on there. It's uh, it's a silly concept. But um, I only believe in not believing in anything. <laughs> yeah, way to stand your ground, Jahira. Um, <laughs> I speak for the trees. If the trees don't care about anything except their own selves, <laughs> I speak for the trees. If the trees aren't winning. <laughs> yeah. what if the tree's winning does that mean i get my anyway. axe out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh boy yeah true neutral druids Dru- druids are like the worst characters in, in second edition they kind of get rid of all that nonsense by fifth edition as i understand it which is good um because it, it, alignments in general are are weird but true neutral is the weirdest among them <laughs> <laughs> So you can do some of these um, companion quests, and as you mentioned, some of them lead to strongholds. This was not a mechanic that I interacted with being so early in the game, and I think I played a mage character. I didn't have a chance on any of my quests to get a mage stronghold, but tell me about this. Yeah, so strong. I, the main stronghold that I interacted with on this playthrough was the Planner Sphere, which is the mage stronghold. Um, so Valagar is the character that will help you um, pursue that quest. You can either do it with him in your party or by carrying his body through the front door because he is of a bloodline that um, resonates with the Planner Sphere that has taken up residence in the heart of Athkalta. Pretty striking thing visually, just worth noting. You know, you're in the slums district and all of a sudden in the upper left corner... There's a gigantic space where a sphere has just sort of no-clipped its way into the center of town. Hmm. <laughs> and um, so you can go in there if you have Valagar in your party or his body in your possession and see what's going on. And the most fascinating thing about the planner sphere is it goes to different dimensions. 
uh, which in D&D terms means you get visits from people from Dragonlance and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Planescape. Uh, there are like references to all of the other settings for D&D inside of this one little um, side quest in Shadows of Um, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, they were... I noticed some um, quite a few call-outs to Planescape Torment, which I think was released about contemporaneously with this game. Yeah, it, it was, and I think there was there's definitely like if you go into like say the um, the magic shop, the Adventure Mart, there is one person Adventure who says, Mart, I loved that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Adventurers are us. <laughs> they, um, <laughs> it's true. It's I mean, this is the city of coin. They're just. You know, they're merchants at, at heart here. And I think that's it's the nice that they thing. left most of the useful merchants in a single shop for you. Yeah, I mean, seriously, it's it's mechanically helpful. Um, but to your point, uh, or to what I was saying earlier, there's an interdimensional traveler there and they will sell you stuff from uh, Planescape Torment or um, I think they'll sell you something from what's the, the sort of dark setting of um, Grey Wolf? D&D. Yeah, Grey Raven or Great Ravenholm. No, not Ravenholm. That's from um, Half-Life. At any rate, that setting, um, they will reference other settings in D&D that um, aren't present in the Forgotten Realms. And I think it's kind of a clever little call out to your point. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's nice to kind of tie it together. I mean, that whole idea of different planes and whatnot is supposed to be like so different campaigns can exist in the same rule set and be like this is how they relate to each other and i think they had fun with that it sounds like by putting this little planar sphere which i never noticed i've been in the slums (laughs) i guess it wasn't one of my favorite places to go but i didn't notice a gigantic planar sphere or whatever yeah upper left man check it out it's pretty it's pretty cool um but at any rate um yeah, the, the, that's not the only um, stronghold in the game. Each sort of character class archetype has a stronghold. Like the cleric will have a, a stronghold in a temple. There will be the fighter who gets the Diarnis keep, the one that you were talking about. You know, you oust the monsters, the trolls specifically from Diarnis keep, and they're like, um, "Well, you've liberated this place. You can have it if you want." Um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, you know, they're they're mostly about just like sort of keeping the place running. Like in the planner sphere, you're like training up little like apprentice mages, and like at the end, the end goal of it is they'll make you like a couple magical items. Um, it's nothing like super like impactful on your overall experience, but it is kind of fun to just run a little stronghold and get a little monthly income or daily income for sitting on your ass, which is you know pales in comparison to just going out adventuring and selling all the magical items you come across. <laughs> so an interesting thing, D&D history-wise, is back in 2nd edition um, and before that, it was very much expected that you'd start gathering followers and you'd start getting a stronghold, even as early as like level 6 or 7. Like um, you stopped being this itinerant adventurer who did things on your own and you started like you know level 10 or 11 you might be commanding armies and it's not about how good you are it's about how good you are your army skills and whatnot how how good of a general are you um and i see this as kind of like bioware leading into this a little bit like in second edition okay you're level 10 you've got to have a stronghold by now we've got to figure out a way to get that in you don't like have henchmen or anything though like you don't train anyone who follows you around though they give you more magic items and they might give you income yeah but they don't like 
follow you into battle, huh? Exactly right. Yeah, that that's true. The the superheroing is left to the NPC party members that you're recruiting and managing. You know, they are the heroes of the realm. Um, yeah, to your point, like it feels like this was kind of like the splitting point between like the the kingdom management, maybe more Gygaxian side of things, and the you know uh, the single hero or party of heroes view of what D and D would eventually become with things like Fifth Edition. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it, it evolved its way there. I mean, I don't think in even third edition they had so much of a focus on the followers and whatnot because, like, if you're, like, a level 15 wizard, it's more cool that you can cast this spell rather than, like, you have to teach some guy how to do some spell or something like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, the strongholds, like, they they quickly kind of fade into the background, especially because, you know, as, as chapter two draws to a close and you know, you start to move on to the more narrow part of that hourglass I was referring to earlier, the the stronghold goes away until you can get back out into the the wider world. Um, any like any other quests or, or things you want to hit on in that sort of broad chapter two area before we move on and, and talk a little bit about some other aspects? I think overall, I was impressed with the breadth of chapter two, all the different things you could do and everything. But I think... Part of the issue that I had coming into the game was that, like you said, you were able to do one quest and get that 20,000 gold you needed by going after the cult. Only two, but yeah. Two quests. (laughs) Like, um, I was just doing whatever quest caught my fancy at the time, um, which I think that leads to, that's, that's a fine way to play things and a fine way to design things, but it led to a longer chapter two than it might have been otherwise maybe i maybe i misrepresented this i could have done it after two quests i didn't i dreamed (laughs) chapter two practically in this playthrough like i had so many uh, fun quests that i decided to stick around and do like we already talked about the planar sphere there's a really great one solving the killings in umar hills where you're finding forgotten gods and um, meeting up eventually with a shadow dragon, and you can sort of decide whether or not you want to fight him at that point. I did not. I, I said, I'm going to let that one sit there for later. Um, and then probably my favorite one is uh, saving the city of trade meat. You'll hear eventually about the city of trade meat. I don't know if this one ever popped into your journal, but it's another city just on the other side of Um, And um, it's a great little, like, hour and a half of gameplay where there's kind of two competing issues this poor merchant town is facing first there's wild animals attacking it second they have an infestation of genies um who aren't (laughs) letting any trade happen in the town so you gotta solve both of them somehow so first things first find the source of the rogue animals turns out a local druid grove has gone tits up and there's a bunch of um like dark druids in there and they're sending angry animals to trades meet. Um, so you can send Jahira in there to solve that one. Basically she becomes like the the leader of that grove or there's another recruitable druid there in case you don't have Jahira in your party. Um, it's a really nice little self-contained campaign where you kind of like save this town. You know, once you take care of the druids, you go back and the genies are like, uh, yo, we will leave this town alone if you find this rogue Raksasha that's hiding out in the, the forest over here. So you find him turn him to the genies and then suddenly you have a whole new town available to you hmm. um it's a really like interesting little thing and it all unfolds pretty quickly 
And I think that's one of the things that I like about Chapter 2 so much in this game is like, we talked about how many of these side quests there are. I don't think any of them really last more than like two hours. So you can get through like a whole really good, well fleshed out one of these things in the course of an evening if you're like focused on it, um, mm -hmm. which is hard to do because Chapter 2 really doesn't incentivize you to focus. It incentivizes you to explore. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of this is like, you're coming at this with the knowledge of what side quests are good. Oh, here's this character. It leads to this quest line. That's good. Which isn't necessarily information available to you when you're me and playing it for the first time. <laughs> like, Fair. which quest line is super interesting, super good, and which one is like, okay, that's, you know, I see what they're trying to go for here, but like, um, you've played through already, you know which quests you want to hit already, you know which party members you want to try out for this playthrough. Um, I feel like, I don't know, like, uh, that was one of the hardest things for me is coming up with my party. Eventually I decided just like, these are the people that joined up with me first, and that's what I'm sticking with. Because it's like, okay, here's uh, here's a paladin that's coming through. Is that good? I don't know. Um, I think I got burned a little bit from the last game, actually. There was, like, the black guard that he joined my party, and then I'm like, oh, actually, you seem evil, so I'm going to kick you out of my party. And then, like... I think I lost reputation or something like that. I'm like, why? What? What did I? What did I do? I didn't realize this was gonna happen. <laughs> so I think part of it me was like, it wasn't a system that really let me experiment with a new party member. Um, it just said like, okay, uh, do you want me? Yes or no? Before you can even like see their stats. Yeah, and here's probably some also not necessarily well telegraphed information is you can always say no to any of these people and just say go wait for me at uh the copper coronet which is sort of this game's like initial hub in chapter two you know mm -hmm. everyone all the adventurers will go to the copper coronet the most tavern ass tavern in all of D. &D. Uh, um, uh we talked about taverns in the past but this is this is a good one believe me to your point like uh this game, and here's here's the first thing I'll say. One is, I could have given you a list of the fit, the best side quests. <laughs> oh, you gave me a list of the best people and the best sorcerer spells, so you did a good job, Sherpa, Ian. <laughs> this was not something I realized would have been a good list for me to have at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, that's fair, and I guess I didn't realize it either. But to your point, there's just so much on offer in Chapter 2, and you know, some of it's going to be better for, say, a sorceress than others. Like, the Diarnis keep quest for instance is one that i skipped on this playthrough because there's not too much there for like the party that i had in mind you know um but the planner sphere on the other hand was one i really wanted to do because it, it got me my stronghold uh, and that was one i had skipped on a previous playthrough because i was a fighter of some sort and i didn't need that um and i think that's one of the strengths of this game is you can choose like to do maybe a sixth of what's on offer in chapter two and it will be your canonical playthrough for that character, and you can move on and be fully ready for Chapter 3. Um, or you can do what I did and do maybe like 50% of it and mm. get pretty over-leveled for Chapters 3, 4, and 5. Um, but at the end of the day, like this was just me wanting to sort of you know, immerse myself a little bit more in this game's total 
play space because, you know, as you said, I played it before and it wasn't going to be as heavy of a lift for me to do it because I kind of knew what to look for. I think one of the things I appreciated about this game, too, is they had impactful magic items. Like you talked about how you didn't do the fighter stronghold quest because there wasn't anything for you there. But you do the wizard stronghold quest and you get like, I don't know, a ring of many colors or something like that um, that gives you plus three to all your spell casting saves or whatever it is. But it's an item that's very impactful for your character and your play style um, that you know, it's wouldn't be good good loot for other um for other classes maybe, but really good for you and like I feel like there were more game altering items in this game than in a typical RPG. Yes, I think you're right. And I think there's a couple I think there's almost one for every class in this game, to be honest. And I, I could list off a couple favorites, but Maybe I'll just do two because I'll do one for my player character and one that was basically a mainstay in my um, my party all the way through Throne of Ball. So there is an item you can just straight up buy in uh, Adventure Mart in Chapter 2 called the Robe of Vecna. It's 30,000 gold. So you can either continue your main quest or you could do what I did and have enough money to you know just buy that bad boy at some point, either in Chapter 2 or when you revisit in Chapter 6. And what it does is it decreases spellcasting time by a lot like a lot a lot so you can uh later on once you're a lot more powerful you can stop time and cast like six spells while time is stopped for a little bit and then have them all happen at once when you unfreeze time (laughs) 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 which you can imagine could be pretty chaotic um the other one is a weapon you get from killing one of the dragons that you meet during um the umar hills killing quest uh the red dragon Firkag and he is holding a sword called the Holy Avenger, which is a plus five sword, which can only be wielded by lawful good characters. Hence, mm. me wanting this paladin in my party. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Keldorn basically became the the delivery mechanism for the Holy Avenger uh, for <laughs> me. And uh, that was kind of his job, was to just run in and merc people with that incredibly badass weapon. And... <laughs> You know, I knew these things were there. There's also one other weapon that I found in Chapter 2 that I happened to know where it was. Unmarked House, Temple District, called the, I think, the Guarded Compound. There's no quest associated with this building whatsoever. But if you go in there and you fight a pretty overleveled party for where you're at in Chapter 2, you can net yourself um, a katana that has a chance to stun people on hit. It it doesn't have a saving throw associated with it. It's just a chance that people get stunned. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly powerful weapon. So there's like all kinds of little things like that. And I think we talked about this in BG1. Like if you know they're there, you will beeline to them and get them no matter what. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This maybe is starting to become a trend so much that I think these games are just better on subsequent playthroughs perhaps. (laughs) Easier, easier in some ways. I mean, I think some of it is the design sensibilities of it. Um, Like, I remember the first time I went into the sewers under the Temple District. Uh, There's the Thieves Party that's towards the north end of the sewers. I forget the guy's name. But that party is pretty high level for when I first ran into them. And... I died to them a couple of times. I'm like, okay, I'm not able to beat those guys right now with my party and with my knowledge of the strategy and everything. Am I 
supposed to be doing this. Like, this game doesn't... Like Baldur's Gate 1, I feel like it doesn't necessarily tell you 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 shouldn't be here. Um, it just... There's random, like, difficult fights or things like that where it's like... You're not sure if they're trying to tell you to stay away from this area or if they're trying to just say, come back, like, take another route in the sewers. I mean, I eventually did, and it was much easier that way. It turns out that party was, like, one of the most powerful things in the sewers. Um, But there they were, right by the entrance, and I had to figure out just to not fight them, but also that I should go around them instead of coming back to the sewers when I was a higher level. Yep. Yeah, I know exactly the party you're talking about. And uh, my solution to uh, killing them early on when I was going to recruit Keldorn was um, to throw some cloud kills up there and run away. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just sort of let it sort itself out. Uh, Try and like box them into an area and, you know, uh, let nature take its course after I cloud killed the air. Um, it's it, it's a game that like in early parts to your point like there's always a way to get around some of the like difficulty spikes or higher level challenges that they have peppered throughout the area because i i think the good thing about Baldur's Gate 2 is they're not scaling encounters and they're not level gating places so you can do that wonderful thing where you're wandering an open world and running into something where you are completely outmatched um and I like that feeling, you know, I like that way more than like the <clears throat> the Oblivion and Skyrim model of when you're early on, you will run into rats in the wilderness. And by the end of the game, you run into roaming Deadra. Um, It just mm. it, it feels weird. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to to, the, to that same effect, like if you happen to get that badass katana I was talking about, Celestial Fury and you're a low-level character, you can jump that power curve and kill that party you're talking about in the sewers, perhaps. But if you don't, and you don't know how to do that, there's a way around. You just have to look hard enough to find it. It's inelegant design, but it lends itself to some interesting situations when you finally resolve them. I feel a game's combat has a very... I'm going to call it the power gamer, or if in D&D parlance, the munchkin play style of things, (laughs) where you are trying to min-max the shit out of your character. Um, And I I feel like this is also like a thing where it's a complicated system in terms of things. Like, I saw a spell that gave minus four to enemy saving throws. And dude, is that good? Is that bad? It turns out it's really good. Um, because that makes your other spells more effective against them. But there's a kind of legibility that's lacking, like, okay, minus four to saving throws, what does that mean? Um, so that's, I think that's one of the one of the things with the game, is that kind of ex- goes on outwards to its um, quest and area design, in which case... Uh, like whatever, when I found that thieving party at first, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to do this quest right now. Good thing I have 20 others that I can go check out and then come back later. And then, you know, like two hours later, I was like, what if I just don't, don't go to that party? What if I just go south instead of west? And it turns out, hey, that worked just great. I cleared out the entire sewers except that party instead. Yeah. And 
I think you hit on something about the, this game's combat that I think we should we should pivot to because I think we <clears throat> we need to talk about this game's combat a bit more and what exactly you're doing during it because to your point like in this game much more so than Baldur's Gate 1 it is all about the spells and the spellcasters and what you're doing with those spells and almost I'd say the minority of them is attacking with the spells um, if you're like facing a spellcaster boss which most of the bosses in this game are the main thing you're trying to do is a bunch of counter spells for whatever protections they have you know uh i think it was pretty much my strategy to roll up to a fight with any magic user and cast like spell strike breach ruby ray of reversal if i had it at the time and uh, lower magic resistance and then once all of those had been cast by the three or three to four spellcasters I had in my party at the time, then I could send the fighter in to finish the job. <laughs> and hmm. not until. <laughs> Spells are very OP in this game and in second edition D&D in particular. Like um, there's the old saying for that system and many, I think third edition had this too, but linear warriors or linear fighters and quadratic wizards, which means like a first level wizard and first level fighter are about the same but a 20th level wizard could mop up like a score of 20th level fighters uh because spells just are that good um in this game yeah they have all those protection spells which i'm never sure what's working and what's not i think that's the legibility of the combat was the thing for me i actually think this game would have worked better for me personally, if it was turn-based instead of the real time with pause, like if I could yeah. see, okay, my guy does this action and then next turn, this guy does this action and it does this. Um, but the real time just kind of made it so chaotic. And so like, I couldn't give the cause and effect. And I think part of that it's, it's not Baldur's gate, but it's second edition D and D like all those protection spells and all that, um, I feel like they didn't I wouldn't I would not design second edition D&D like that if I was doing it, you know what I mean? Yes, I I agree with you. Like there's way simpler ways to do what they're trying to do here, but to your point, like those spells existed in the tabletop game so they ported them into this computer game because this at its heart is a D&D or second edition D&D simulator, right? <laughs> oh yeah, very but, much trying to do that. So to that end, like and I'm going to reach forward in time and tell you about one simple UI trick that Baldur's Gate 3 does that could have saved this game a lot of headaches. Um, and it's the fact that it doesn't rely on that bottom of the screen text scroll to give you information. In Baldur's Gate 2, that is all you're getting, right? You're getting the the scrolling log at the bottom that shows you uh, who's casting what, how much damage is being done where. What it doesn't do, or unless you're reading extremely carefully, what it doesn't do is tell you what's being dispelled by every spell that's cast, right? Like you cast Breach on a wizard and you don't know what protections it's removing. You know, you don't know that that mm. removes stone skin. Um, what Baldur's Gate 3 does is whenever you have a new status effect added or removed over a character, it will say the name of the status and do a slat or do a strike through of that status if it's being removed or have it just pop up there if it's being added. And just oh, that man. alone is just extremely helpful for understanding like who's being affected by what at any given time. On top of that, you know, modern UI allows for things like mouse over to see like what statuses are affecting any given person on the battlefield at any given time. Baldur's Gate 
2 obviously doesn't have that except for your own characters, which is represented by extremely tiny, minute icons on your character Mm. um, Mm -hmm. flow on the right side of the screen, which you have to go into your character sheet to understand what exactly those are. And even then, you don't know what they do. You have to go to the internet to look up what those mean. (laughs) It just says ability drained wait a minute which ability is drained oh i see that my <laughs> intelligence is red i guess it's my intelligence um <laughs> yep nothing i like better in the middle of a thrilling battle than going to my character sheets to hover over a status effect and yeah things like the ability drain i was walking around for probably two hours with the intelligence of a slug and not realizing <laughs> it <laughs> Because yeah. my only indication was like a tiny icon in the character portrait that's itself is like 64 pixels wide. And the hilarious thing is that by the end of like Throne of Ball, you have that entire character portrait filled up for most of your characters with positive <laughs> status effects. So you can't even like see Minsk's face. It's just like a list of like uh, a moon with some stars and like a fire ball and, you know, just a bunch of random icons filling up the little character portrait. You know, thinking of Minsk, like, I feel like that was um, not knowing what the status effects were doing was a big thing, too. Like, uh, there would be some, I don't know, a spell like Shield or Barkskin, maybe something you could cast on your wizard or another person. And I never really knew what it was, how, how effective it was. Like, if I threw it on Minsk and he, if the, I don't know, the rat missed him would mm-hmm. was it because of the spell was it because minsk has good armor or not like um i didn't get the feedback i was looking for in order to know if what i was doing was effective or not and i will say i, I will say you're right about that and i think that's because any individual thing generally speaking and i'm not saying this in totality because there are individual things to make a huge difference but generally it's at least on the in the early levels any individual thing isn't going to tip the scales for you however i will say this about the combat in Baldur's gate is prep is absolutely key for victory um you know if you are going into a big fight you quick save before it you do all of your buffs you get like uh your blessings your hastes your protections your you know etc there's a hilarious like internet video where they show just a mage casting a bunch of different protections and buffs on himself and then finally starting the battle and it's exactly like that in Baldur's Gate you spend about 5 <laughs> minutes casting buffs on yourself and then you quick save and you're like all right now I'm ready to start the fight and you go in and it is the difference between literally falling flat on your face and dying and mopping the floor with guys, and it just gets worse in Throne of Ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe and it. So here's the thing about that is like in Shadows of Om, once you get like a rhythm down for it, that is absolutely thrilling. Like to me, that is like the peak combat in this game is like, all right, I've got my my rhythm where I have all of these buffs and hastes and blessings and things and summons that I'm casting before a battle and I go in and the battle's basically over before it starts. Um, My guys are just wiping the floor with everyone. At some point you get the time stop spell and you're doing what I was talking about earlier where you stop time, drop five cloud kills on top of the strongest enemies and they disintegrate when time unfreezes. Um, And that is really fun. Like this game allows you to break it over your knee if you want it to. 
Well, that's what the the whole like promise of the Munchkin method is. Is like you can destroy things once you know how the system works. I will say though too that the wizards were not programmed to be dumb. The ones you're facing, <laughs> um, there are spells like uh, contingency is one that I didn't even realize this was being used against me. Uh, but there are enemies that have contingency precast against you, and what contingency and its variants do is they allow you to cast precast a number of spells that get instantly unleashed against you if somebody turns hostile (laughs) against you which is great for you as the player but then you walk up against uh this wasn't the thieving party it was somebody else but it was like oh hostile and i'm dead and i don't know why or it's like okay this enemy is clearly beyond me but that's because i didn't understand the contingency kind of effects i didn't have the protections up there you know so, yeah, and, and this game is not shy about putting you up against enemies that have those types of capabilities very early on. Like, Athkelta is a weird city in that it has a vampire problem and a lich problem. And <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of vampires and a lot of liches in um, uh, the Shadows of Am, one might call them. Um, and they will wreck your shit in Chapter 2, and they will probably still wreck your shit when you revisit that city in Chapter 6, but at least by then you have some methods of dealing with them. And to your point, Josh, like unless you have the appropriate protections cast or the ability to dispel whatever it is they're immediately propping up with their contingencies, the battle is over before it starts. As I said, they're doing the op- they're doing the same thing to you that I am trying to do to most enemies that I come across in Baldur's Gate. <laughs> I feel like part of this, too, is because this game did happen two decades ago. Like, there's been a lot learned in terms of game design, in terms of UI design, and making things more legible. Like you said, Baldur's Gate 3 has a simple way to be like, status effect happening or not happening, which helps out immensely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, UI improvements, um, even just improvements to like raw mechanics and how they interact with you know, what you're trying to do as a player character, your stats, your build, right? Like, I think, thank God, there is a trend going away from, like, a 5% increase to X, uh, Hmm. a 3% increase to Y, and, like, real meaningful things being given to a player character with every decision they're making, like a 50% increase in uh, attack power, um, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, to your point, just helps with legibility of like what you're trying to accomplish with a build. Like it's it's pretty hard if things are so granular. And this type of D and D is it can be granular on the spell action or attack action level. And once you combine that with like the very minute way that you need to have everything set up, for one thing, it offers the player a lot of control. And if you were like really wanting to get in there and micromanage, then you're in hog heaven. But if you're not, and you just want to get through this game and see what it has on offer, well, that's why they have difficulty settings. You can bump it mm. down to easy, you can bump it down to story mode, and you can fly through this bad boy. I probably should have done that at some point, but maybe <laughs> one day I can bump down to easy. I, I have too much damn pride. I think one interesting <laughs> thing, too, thinking about... Uh, I have two more things to say about like the type of the D&D. Uh, first one is about the translation to computer games with the quick save, quick load. Um, I feel like 
with D&D in general, when you have wizards who prepare their spells the day ahead of time, uh, there's, you know, it, it implies a certain amount of preparation is necessary for any big bad battle. Like, oh, you're going to go up against the fire dragon, so you're going to bring protection against fire, what have you, find the weakness, all that sort of stuff. Um, I feel that that kind of gets broken a little bit when you can rest at any time and prepare, you know, get back to all of your highest level spells available again. And um, there's no penalty for doing so. Like if you and me were playing D and D and you're like, I'm going to rest in the temple of evil, you know, like 16 <laughs> days in a row and just cast my biggest fireballs at anybody who comes my way. Um, I'm going to kind of like say, okay, so after the first week, they've noticed that you're there and now they're like <laughs> reacting to that. Whereas in this game, because of its nature as a computer game, it's like it can't react to that in the same way. It has to not only has to present you the same challenge, it has to plan for that challenge as if that's what you're doing. So in in a way, the quick save, quick reload of the game kind of breaks second edition D&D and makes magic even more OP because you're coming out guns blazing for, you know, the smallest fight. Yeah. And it didn't have to be that way. They could have had, uh, let's say they did a save and load at the beginning of each dungeon and you can't save and load it in the meantime, then that would have been a different game. But that's, you know, not the game we're playing. For what it's worth, that's a much harder game. Oh, it would have been balanced differently, though. I will say this. I think they're, they took the opposite tact, and by the end of Shadows of Am, and especially the end of Throne of Ball, they are accounting for degenerative player behavior with the use of quick save and quick load, because it gets balls hard. And... um there is just no way that without that capability, you're making your way through there, at least from my perspective. Maybe I'm just bad at this game or my sorceress finally met the match of the power curve they were on. No, they they absolutely plan for this in the difficulty curve. I mean, um, why else would you have like the thieving party that's uh, overpowered for the initial, like if you go there right after the end of act one, you will not have enough experience to beat them at at least I think that's my take on it, uh, which you can do because that's open world at that point. Um, so they are planning for the quick save and quick load, but also for the power gaming mentality where they are like, you are trying to min-max your character. You are trying to make them the most powerful. Yeah, and I mean, for what it's worth, that's mostly how I, I played the game. I tried to get to a point where I could just set up like simple AI scripts that would use the spells that I needed them to get through any given like normal mob encounter. And then I would just turn all that stuff off when I did a boss encounter and make sure I was rested up so I can take matters into my own hands. And that pretty much worked. Like I, I had a powerful enough party with enough like of the right spells memorized that I didn't have a bunch of useless stuff being casted without my, my, uh, permission. <laughs> I did like the party AI system in this. I got a, got a lot of great use from that and even learned that some spells were more valuable than I thought they were. Yeah, see? Like, uh, somehow it, it kind of does work. And I'm sort of backporting all of my complaints about this game's battle systems from like the only time that I really had a hard time with it, which was the end of Throne of Ball. Um, generally speaking, like, I really like the tactical combat in this game. Like, I, I would say it's you know, it holds up fine to this day for me, just because to your point, I have the knowledge that I need to make it parsable. 
And if you have that, or if you're willing to put enough reading time in to get that, um, again, perhaps not recommended these in this day and age, um, then it's good. Like, it's generally quite good. But, you know, at the end of Throne of Ball, that's another story, and I'll save that for, for that section of our discussion. <laughs> <laughs> So the other point I think that was a uh, carryover from second edition D&D with this is, uh, I love this word, you're playing a party of murder hobos. Like you are wandering killers walking around like, um, this might not be true for all the quests, but every quest I did ended with combat and death and destruction. And at some point you got to <laughs> think like, is it me? Am I the one doing this? And I think the answer is yes. That is absolutely me doing this. Josh, please allow me to share some words of wisdom with you. <clears throat> the Lord of Murder shall perish, but in his doom he shall spawn a score of mortal progeny. Chaos shall be sown from their passage, so saith the wise Alondo. <laughs> you are a ball spawn. This is absolutely just you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, touche. That is in the lore of the game, so I suppose it makes sense. It makes sense. But I do think it is like a, um, yes, it is, you know, explained in the game and explained well. I buy that explanation. I'm a murder spawn right there anyways. Uh, but like... I remember doing like an investigation in the slums trying to figure out who was doing some murderers. And it's like, oh, it's an evil cult. Oh, there's demons attacking me now. Better kill them. Um, and I feel like I never saw a quest that didn't end in violence. Not to say there there, there might be some. I just didn't see them. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, most, uh, you know, on the order of uh, extremely high percentage, there are not a lot of non-combat quests in this game. This is a game that's pretty focused on the combat aspect of D&D. Um, I will say, uh, this is another thing, and I, I'm going to stop talking about Baldur's Gate 3, but I think Baldur's Gate 3 does a lot better job with this. Um, I am a persuasion and deception heavy character right now in that game, and it is paying off big time. A lot of avoidance of combat or solving things uh, non-violently uh, as an option in that game. And uh, I'm just about to enter Baldur's Gate, the big city, uh, as part of uh, one of the later acts. So I'm hoping that it only goes continues in that way from here. I think that is, though, like part of the play style of second edition and, you know, the table topping of that era was kind of like the huge combat focus. Yeah, and, and very much tactics focused too. Like to your point about min-maxing earlier, um, this is a game that has people that are still playing it to this day and are running like one character hardcore difficulty runs, you know? Like mm -hmm. it's a, kind of a solved game from a like, if you want to sit down with a spreadsheet and be able to figure out exactly what it's going to take to get through Throne of Ball with a single character and min-max the hell out of it, you can do that. And that's part of, like, I think what people like about Baldur's Gate 2 is that it is that sort of very robust, mechanically rewarding combat system. 
don't get me wrong, there's also like more lightweight tactical situations and some hella good writing along the way. But I think that's not what a lot of the biggest fans of this game are necessarily here for. And I may be an outlier in that that is exactly what I'm here for. Like, I'm getting through the combat. I enjoy it from time to time. But I'm really here for, like, the interesting world building and the story this game is telling. Um, Mm -hmm. And that may just be, like, sort of me as the way that I like to enjoy games. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, The world they build, the plot they weave. Uh, Because I really enjoyed what I saw of the plot, which, you know, obviously is two of six acts. Seven, but yeah, um, in in Shadows of Am, it's really interesting. Like to your, we were we've already talked about like up through chapter two, where you know you need to get the money so that you can go to Spellhold, which is the prison for mages that Arenicus and Imowin are being held in. Um, and once you get there, like you quickly discover that Arenicus is a much bigger badass than you even thought, and he has taken over Spellhold while you were gathering the funds to rescue Imowin. Um, <laughs> He's, you know, the inmates are in charge of the asylum, literally. And so he immediately escapes. And you're wondering, like, what what is his angle? His angle apparently is to use you and your divine lineage to become a god himself. And he recognized that that same uh, taint, as they call it, the taint of Baal, is present in Imowin. And he is a sort of side, uh, or an accomplice named Bodhi, who is a vampire from... Uh, Ethkalta, who has taken Imowin's soul uh, as as a way to become a god as well. So they're kind of both in cahoots. Irenicus has taken your soul. Bodhi has taken Imowin's. Once you get through Spellhold, they both flee to another famous D&D setting, the Underdark. <laughs> so, as you might expect, you're running across drow and things of that nature. Um, it's cool. I like how they're starting to sort of draw in all of the things from the various Forgotten Realms and sort of its key, you know, signature settings, if you will. Interesting that the game spans such a area, too. Like, it's so focused on the city, but then it sounds like after Spellhold, you are mostly done with that city? Sort of. So how it works is once you depart for Spellhold, you are sort of locked into a linear progression along the main quest for chapters three or sorry chapters four and five which are pretty long right so you leave for spellhold you have an entire sort of maybe five to six hours where you're landing on that island infiltrating the asylum dealing with arenicus and all of the shenanigans he got up to in there you actually stage a prison riot you free (laughs) all of the other you free all of the other like inmate mages and they help you take down or at least stop Ironicus from what he's trying to do there which is you know continue his ball spawn research Mm -hmm. and um then he flees to the underdark and you you realize he's in in league with a group of drow who are trying to invade the surface and uh this is because he is an elf he is an exiled elf who tried to become a god before by stealing the essence of the elves like sort of deity tree and as a result of all of that uh you have to infiltrate a drow city in the underdark in order to like pursue him which is another incredible side quest and again like you're exploring a gigantic open zone in the underdark for all of chapter five which is probably like a maybe six to seven hour affair um if it sounds like this is a long game you'd be right (laughs) it's a pretty long game 
Um, I think my playthrough this time around clocked in around 40-something hours. Mm-hmm. Um, longer than that, like 60 hours. Finally, after all of that, and you've pursued him through the Underdark, you find out that he has escaped back to the surface to go menace the elves that were his origin, and that is Chapter 6. You emerge from the Underdark, and your task is to gather and rally your forces for the assault on the elven city of Sundalesar, which Ironicus has taken over. And that is where all of the game's fun little references start to come in. You see Drizzt Doerden again. Oh, man. He knew we wouldn't get through this podcast without his name popping up. Uh, ah. You can recruit him and his entire party to help you take out Bodhi, um, which who is in possession of a lamp that is going to allow you to go into that elven city. And then finally, you're able to confront Arenicus. And uh, yeah, he's a just a hell of a good villain. I, I think we haven't mentioned to date, but or to to date in this podcast, but he has a hell of a voice actor in this game. Like he is just chewing scenery left and right with that mm-hmm. performance. I did enjoy him, and I feel like there's been a lot of evil characters you've seen in games who have tried to give like speeches about their motivations or their plot to save the world or change the world or something like that. And I liked I liked Irenicus's, uh pitch to me throughout chapter or Acts one and two. It's like you have a lot of power, and you should use it. Which doesn't sound great when I'm saying it, but the way he shows it to you uh, is, you know, it's like, oh, maybe I should switch from being a good playthrough to an evil playthrough. I don't know. That seems fun. Um, so he, <laughs> he, it was, uh, it was convincing. He was charismatic. He is a very, yeah, it's a very charismatic villain. And David Warner, who is the actor that plays uh, John Arenicus, as I was mentioned, you know, to me is head and shoulders above all the rest of the performances in this game, some of which are actually quite good. So it it does a fantastic job. Um, To that end, though, you hit on something that I kind of agree with. Like, Arenicus, he's clearly a, a, you know, a voice of evil, bad influence on you. But he's planting but. a seed in your character. <laughs> he's planting your seed in, in in your character's head, which I think comes much more to the fore in Throne of Ball. Because where, you know, once you confront Irenicus and defeat him and reclaim your soul, um, not before he drags you into hell with him after you kill him. Because it turns out if you kill someone and they possess your soul, you go to hell too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have to defeat him a second time in hell. And then you're finally able to to end the game, and he's banished for you know all eternity to, to hell, um, and he's gone. Like he does not reappear in Throne of Ball. But those ideas that you talked about about like, hey, you have this thing in you, this essence of the ball spawn. It is in your nature to, if not become, then to strive to become the Lord of Murder. Um, and that's what Throne of Ball is all about. Yeah, Throne of Ball, very extensive expansion pack, but where do you go from there after you're like, I think you can get up to a level, is there a max level on this? Is it 19 or 20 or something like that? In normal 2nd edition D&D, I understand that level 20 is generally around where things top off. However, the top level- Level 20 is where you're like taking on gods. Right, but the top level that you can achieve in Throne of Ball is 40 for single-class <laughs> rogues, monks, clerics, and fighters, which is to say, very high. Um, you're not going to get there if you're in a full party of six, right? Like, there's not enough experience in the game. But you're getting extremely powerful in Throne of Ball. 
And the whole point of it is basically you are doing Highlander for ball spawn. Um, there is a situation where there are three other extremely powerful ball spawn. They all have armies. They're all vying for power in the southern reaches of Am. And you are kicked out of uh, that elven city of Sundalesar because they're like, hey, we do not need this ball spawn heat here. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can kindly fuck off. Um, <laughs> and so after like a brief stint in a city called Saradush to kill a ball spawn general there, you are um, left with three remaining big chess pieces on the map. There is a ball spawn fire giant called Yagashura, a ball spawn drow called Sendai, and a dragon ball spawn named huh. Absigal, who is a blue dragon. Um, and so you're you're basically doing this thing where they're combining all of the most powerful entities in Dungeons and Dragons with the essence of a god, and those are the bosses that you're going after in <laughs> in Throne of Ball. And it's worth noting that as big and fleshed out as this expansion pack, quote unquote, is. It strikes me, and I think this has been revealed after the fact, that this absolutely should have a game, been a game where they released it as a true sequel and fleshed out each of the chapters for those pivotal, you know, giant bosses in a way and given them like their own Baldur's Gate 2 style chapter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the killing of all three of those ball spawn are is one chapter of Throne of Ball. There are some of the more tactically interesting situations in this and that they're just throwing a ton of enemies at you but you're so powerful that you're just mowing them down left and right like it is more Hmm. of a war of attrition for you most of the time in throne of ball there is one boss battle in throne of ball that i think is like extremely good and it is the sendai boss battle where you have to fight eight different iterations of this drow boss and each yeah not just second phase but (laughs) eight phases and between each of them, they send like a bunch of mobs. And by mobs, I mean like fully leveled up drow priestesses and warriors and beholders and illithids after you. And you have to like simultaneously hold them off while killing the main big bad Sendai herself. And it's thrilling. Like it is an extremely good, like I think I was just like at the right edge of the power curve for it to be just the perfect boss battle in terms (laughs) of challenge for me. So extremely satisfying from that perspective. Everything else in Throne of Ball up until the very end boss run is easy. Like, you're just too powerful by that point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there, there's a point at which in this game, like, you can get to a place where the power curve cannot catch up to your character unless they start just pulling out all the stops and making pretty cheesy decisions on the behalf of the the bosses that you're facing. I think that's maybe the... I'll say that like certain other genres, uh, souls likes and roguelikes, uh, knowledge of the systems is at a premium here compared to other genres um, or other games. And I feel that maybe this is an example of your knowledge of the systems being deep enough that you're considering a lot of these fights easy um like you kind of know the tricks you know the knobs to tweak uh, which kind of like elides certain tactical decisions you'd have to make otherwise 
Yeah, I think there I think there are certain sort of solved scenarios in this game. Like I, I when I was talking earlier about sort of the time stop cast a lot of spells in quick succession because you've maximized for spell casting time. That that is like a situation that is going to solve 90% of the encounters you have in Throne of Ball, right? Like, mm-hmm. stop time, cast level 8 damage area of effect spell, Obzigal's Horde wilting five times on your enemies, and, you know, everything just disintegrates. Um, it, it doesn't work when you have, like, some of these very final end boss battles. But the problem with those end boss battles are not that you're not dealing enough damage it's that they are they are able to just kill you so fast. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the problem with that is it becomes like this war of attrition where they are expecting you to go through all of the final battles in Throne of Ball without any rest, which of course would have been very difficult for my specific, you know, spellcasting focused situation. So what it boiled down to for me, to your point, is another sort of degenerative strategy is I try to break aggro, find a way to cast like a wish spell that would restore all of my spells and quick save or quick load if that did not happen correctly. <laughs> and then, you know, if that, if, if that didn't, if it, yeah, if that didn't work, then I'd have to quick load to back to the point where I could try and make it work again. Um, it feels kind of bad that, you know, that, that final boss is kind of was only able to be done even moving it down to easy difficulty with some extremely degenerative strategy and it also didn't really feel that great that from a story perspective um that final boss was also someone that they basically introduced as a major enemy a couple hours beforehand um Mm. you know i would have expected a little more i'm not going to spoil the exact details of it in in this podcast since you know you haven't played it and probably most people won't have gotten to it but I will say that I don't think the final enemy and boss fight in Baldur's Gate to Throne of Ball is necessarily a big cathartic payoff. Um, mm-hmm. I think Baldur's Gate 2 ended on a higher note. I think the ramifications of Throne of Ball, if taken as a whole, are a little more satisfying once you get like through the epilogue and see like you know what your character's choices did, whether or not you ascended to the Throne of Ball or not. But... Yeah, the way they they decided to get there with all of this sort of Highlander of ball spawn situation going on just didn't really do it for me, sadly. Part of that might be the expansion pack nature of the game. Like, by calling it an expansion pack instead of a sequel, it's like explicitly for people who played Baldur's Gate 2 and wanted more Baldur's Gate 2. Like, it wasn't trying to set up an independent story. They're like, okay, fight some more bosses, I guess. And since you've been munchkinning along this entire time, we're going to have to munchkin even harder. Um, Which is, it's a very cool, good, like, feeling that, like, combat can be this kind of puzzle. Where it is in this game. It really is. Yeah, it's like you solved it or you didn't, and you wipe the floor or you get wiped, um, which can let you know how it is. Um, so that can be, if you, you know, I think this game is power, power gaming par excellence. It's not my chosen style of role playing, tabletopping by any means, but, you know, more power to you if that is your jam. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, I, you know, I'm thinking about like taken as a whole the things I like about Baldur's Gate 2 
and Throne of Ball are that it retains a lot of what made Baldur's Gate 1 special. It's still a really great simula simulation of 2nd edition D&D. Um, it builds on the original in all the ways we talked about earlier. Um, I love it as a game that sets sort of the table for some of my favorite future games, you know, the Mass Effects and Dragon Ages of the, the world. You know, I had a great time playing those at the times in which they came out. They could absolutely not have happened without the influence of Baldur's Gate 2. Love it for that as well. But now playing Baldur's Gate 3, I have, you know, I can feel the lineage of this game in that one. And I feel all the holes they sort of plugged in the 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 mechanical dam that was clearly breaking under what Throne of Ball was trying to do. Yeah? <laughs> um, and sort of playing all three of these games in a year makes me realize that I love these games equally for very different re reasons, you know? Like, I, I love the open-ended aspect of Baldur's Gate 1. I loved the incredibly interesting structure of Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Bomb and the fact that Throne of Ball allowed me to truly take the dirt farmer I had from Baldur's Gate 1 into godhood and now i'm loving Baldur's gate 3 as i'm playing it now because it seems like they understood the assignment with regards to the lineage that they're trying to uphold and the forgotten realms lore that they're exploring and amplifying it both mechanically and in a storytelling perspective in every way and uh i look forward to discussing that one more once you guys have played it mm, looking forward to playing it and i feel like i have the history now i have the archaeology to see where the game's coming from, where it's been, and where it's going. Yeah, well, um, you'll have to see if, I guess we'll have to see if you agree with me on Baldur's Gate 3, but, um, you know, if Clint and I's reactions are any indication, I think you're in for a treat. Uh, all right, with that, let's go to some three-word reviews. My three-word review for Baldur's Gate 2 is an era defined. Baldur's Gate 2 was a huge expansion on the studio's previous effort, and their second release in this bespoke engine shows just what a company can accomplish when given lofty ambitions and a budget to achieve them. Baldur's Gate 2 is almost a validation of Baldur's Gate 1, showing where the story was leading and how the systems could take you there. Expansive in scope and scale, Baldur's Gate 2 birthed a particular swashbuckling flavor of Dungeons & Dragons to the video game world. Its influences were powerful then and can still be felt today in Bioware, Bioware's continued CRPG flavor. However, I think that evolving ideas about Dungeons & Dragons role-playing and RPGs in particular have changed this game years later. It revels in a particular idea of D&D and role-playing, and it shows its age around UI design and legibility. It wants its players to pay attention, but then doesn't tell them what they should pay attention to. It's harder to play now, with another two decades of received game design wisdom and lessons learned. Still, one can't help but feel that it defined the CRPG genre for the next decade. Couldn't agree more. It's important, uh, important in the past as it is today. My three-word review is Masterpiece Meets Micromanagement. 
Baldur's Gate 2 builds upon Baldur's Gate 1 in almost every way and hits the sweet spot of mid-level adventuring featuring an incredible amount of side content balanced with a driving main quest. The masterstroke of having Chapter 2 open up so wide and kicking the character out the front door with a mandate to quest to gain money was brilliant <laughs> and echoes the open world structure of Baldur's Gate 1 but in a much more elegant way. In Baldur's Gate 2, the combat is tactical and focuses frequently on removing protections and making your foes vulnerable to what you're throwing at them. By the end of Throne of Ball, however, it becomes just a bit too complex for my taste. Contingencies, wish spells, it all takes a lot of setup. Sadly, the high-level play is just not that fun for me as a result. It's beautiful in concept, but all the menuing becomes a bit of a grind. It's just a bit too much minutia for my taste. If I'm honest, I'm here more for the narrative, the D&D questing, and some light tactics, which luckily, BG2 delivers in spades for the most part. For all of the accolades and infamy this game has gathered over the years, it succeeds in the same thing that made its predecessor works for me mostly. It's just a great D&D simulator. Even at the higher levels, where Masterpiece meets Micromanagement. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on ballin'. I think Minsk did wear a little more on me with his vocal barks this time around than the first game. I mean, yeah. If He's you didn't Minsk get sick of it after your, if you didn't get sick of it after the first forty hours, I don't know what to tell you. Um, that, that was one of the main reasons I didn't keep him in my party in, in Baldur's Gate too, to be frank. Um, oh man, shots fired. Yeah, I'm sorry, Minsk. Um, yeah. Spoiler warning for Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, plug your ears if you don't want to hear this, Josh. He is in Baldur's Gate 3. I just haven't found him yet, and I am kind of dreading it if he's actually good. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I didn't really love the ending in Baldur's Gate 2, but I did like the, sort of the Animal House-style epilogues that they gave each of the characters. Like, Imowin founds a thieves' guild and pals around with Elminster. Um <laughs> Jahira is traumatized and never returns to the Sword Coast. Eri apparently uh, becomes like a high priestess in Understone, a gnomish village that her mentor, you know, came from. Hmm. Uh, Keldorn fell in battle as any good paladin does and ascends to the right hand of Torm. Um, and Valagar, my ranger, apparently became a fucking cop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, he he said that he it it is said that he reformed them, which I'll believe it when I see it. Was that the like flaming fists of justice or whatever they were that you did not like from the first game? No, no, no. He uh, he becomes the chief inspector of Athkelta, um, 
but or the chief inspector of the cowled wizards actually so that that group you're fighting against yeah. at the beginning yeah so he like apparently becomes an effective leader and reforms the organization um yeah again like what does that mean exactly we'll see um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I like that. That was entertaining to me. The whole like, did your character become a god or not thing is is definitely kind of like the core crux of the whole series, right? Like that is the main deci- the main decision that is set up for you at the end of Baldur's Gate one and Baldur's Gate two. Throne of Ball delivers on it, so it has that going for it. So what were what was a favorite moment from the game for you? I think if I'm having to think of like a favorite cool thing that the game did in all of shadows of Amman throne of ball. I would have to say there's a part in chapter five where you have to do a triple cross, uh, in drow society, right? Like there is a demon being summoned to lead the charge against the elves in the overworld. And so situation set up, there's a silver dragon. They give you fake dragon eggs. You have a, former colleague drow who you've been working for in the past they also give you a set of fake dragon eggs you give the first set of fake dragon eggs to the colleague to set the trap for the priestess who is using a real set of silver dragon eggs to summon the demon demon shows up these are fake dragon eggs other person comes in oh i tricked that person here's the real dragon eggs those are also fake that person gets (laughs) killed as well (laughs) and you're left holding the real dragon eggs which you can then decide to do whatever you want with uh i dismissed the demon gave him back to the dragon and went to the surface nice um there is some very fun sort of chicanery you get up to in the underdark and i think that is like a, a very good indicator of the good writing that this game has on hand and the care that it takes to properly represent what a shitty place the underdark is and draft society is i think i also really enjoyed the writing for the game like the quests and what you would do um maybe part for me that's part of why i mentioned the murder hobo aspect of it before i was a little disappointed that it seemed like every quest would end up in a climactic fight against something or other and it didn't seem like there was a like I wanted more of the writing rather than trying to decipher the tactical battle situation Um, but the game just gave me more of the tactical battle situation which I could not decipher it's probably not a coincidence that the instance that I just mentioned is one of the few non-violent resolutions to a major game conflict that exists (laughs) so all i had to do was soldier on for another three acts yep (laughs) 